Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where every week we talk about the business of sports with interesting executives, investors, athletes, students, and other bon vivants in the industry, including my partner, Joe Favorito. And we are Wayne Gretzky today, Tom, number 99, episode 99. Oh, that's right, 99. Okay. And we still have to decide what we're going to do from number 100. Right. We're We're going to do a hologram of Maurice is what we're going to do. (laughs) But we have another week to decide that. Um, So we've got a lot going on in the industry this week, and we'll touch on some of those events and happenings as we get into this conversation on a topic we haven't really covered in earnest yet, artificial intelligence, and I'll introduce our guests in a second. Something we have nothing of, by the way. Well, intelligence. <laughs> we have We're intelligence. It's a little bit artificial. Good, so. um, but I want to start by giving our producer, who's been a, just a terrific asset in this podcast, uh, Maurice Eisenman, a little shout out for something he's been working on for a few months, which is uh, a podcast that is dedicated to the world of esports and esports, uh, the business side of esports. So, um, Maurice, first of all, congratulations on actually launching that podcast. Thank you. It's never an easy thing to do. Um, really, really good move. And he's doing that in partnership with Anton Ferreira, who just got a big job at Riot Games, we understand. Yes, correct. Terrific. Um, and I want to let everybody know that, you know, we've talked a lot about esports on this podcast, seemingly um, on a weekly basis in, in different mm-hmm. ways um, when you look back on it. And for those uh, listeners who care about esports, I think most people should to one degree or another because it's so important right now in our business. It's a great listen. They're getting really interesting guests covering the hot topics of the day. So everybody can check out Esports Boom. That's the official name of it on the leading platforms, including iTunes and Stitcher and Blog Talk Radio and others. So check it out. Esports Boom. Look for Maurice and Anton and enjoy their commentary every week. That's our first paid ad right there. Right, right. Right. 50 thank, cents. Thank you, thank you so much, Maurice. That was terrific. That'll keep us going for the next month or two. Yeah. Um, but we want to uh, get into this topic today, which is in the general uh, area of technology. As I said, the topic is artificial intelligence. And we have one of the leading minds and voices and entrepreneurs in the artificial intelligence business related to sports and retail and our culture right now. And he's a guy that I've gotten to know over the last year or so, had the good fortune of having him in my classroom, which has been terrific. Um, Some of you may know him from his notoriety on various panels in the industry, some of the awards that they've been winning, some of the deals they've been winning in the marketplace. Uh, His name is Donnie White, and Donnie is the founder and CEO of Satisfy Labs. That's Satisfy with an I. We'll get into where you can find it later on. But Donnie, welcome to The Cusp Show. We're really happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm uh, excited to be here. Heard a lot about the podcast as a listener. So now excited to be a contributor. Awesome. And uh, into Studio D we go. Into Studio D for a discussion about artificial intelligence. So before we get into kind of the big topic, and we'd like for all the benefit and edification of our listeners, maybe you giving an overview of what exactly that means as it relates to the sports business, especially. Let's hear the Donnie White story. How did you end up as an entrepreneur in the tech business in New York City? When my parents went bankrupt when I was still in college, uh, I went for a receptionist job and I found a piece of paper on the bulletin board and said, I could, I could answer the phone. I could answer the phone a lot for $15 an hour. So I went to a company not well known. It was called Bloomberg. And I said, I'll pick up the phone as many times as you need. And they said, great, but we could probably teach you some other things too if you're willing to learn. I said, listen, I'm broke, so I'll learn whatever that is. 
and they taught me networking, like TCPIP and mm -hmm. technologies like that. Real networking. Hard so, stuff, yeah. right? So once I got... That networking we don't do. Exactly. I got a little adept at that and eventually moved up the chain a little bit into operations and then ran the department. Uh, about 25 years old, I had 80 people in my supervision, which is their fault. I feel bad for all 80 of those people, but they endured it. Then uh, someone walked up to me and said, hey, there's a new... What year was that, Donnie? This is... So this I'm is... only 21 now. <laughs> you don't like, mind this, was, this was the boom of Bloomberg. When Bloomberg was boom of Bloomberg. Right. I actually so, had someone approach Bloomberg. me. Yeah. Someone approached me and say, hey, do you want to get into the business, the mm. sales business? I said, great. We're launching a new technology called algorithmic trading, and we're looking for someone to help on the back end of this and mm. also sell it. Are you interested? Now, this is pre like Credit Suisse and all the brokers that started. So I was very early into trading machines that would be faster, more efficient than people. Yeah. Eventually, I ran product development. I had a team about 40 developers that we built some great products at Bloomberg. And then one day I said, you know, I really think our salespeople are not doing a good job for products that we're building. And I was graduated to the head of sales and did that for another. Wait, but where did, how did you develop the technical expertise to do this initially? I think some of it comes from truthfully reading a tremendous amount of literature, but I was lucky in that I took mentorship from some very deep technical people. Like I would sit next to the field at, techs. At Bloomberg. Yeah, I would sit next to the field techs and take them out to lunch. I would go out for drinks maybe with the networking folks. So you learn just by really studying like anyone would learn. And then there's some natural you know, connection that has to be made there. So I had a good boss, good mentor, and he would draw it in a way I could understand and then make me teach it to others. Wow. That's wow. how I learned. That's really interesting. And I'm sure that was on the sixth floor where they had all the high caloric food before Mike came back into yeah. the building. That's right. Sure. We had cookies baked every yeah. day by a yeah. chef. And then, you know, the no more. certain sure. amount of poundage would yeah. reduce that to carrots and celery. Mm -hmm. you know. Well, they've cut back on the snacks. Yeah. Well, not, the, me, that's not, not the heavy, heavy, like it used to be like, you know, oh, let's go pick up food, you know. And then it became when Mike came back, it became... Just snacks and vegetables okay. and those things. So. That's right. We, we, we went healthy. Yep. Once anyway. uh, got into sales, loved it. Loved the business. Got some international exposure. Ran South America and North America. So understood the Brazil market versus I had some London jurisdiction as well. So getting a global feel for business was really fun. My 14th year, I looked back at my career. I graduated Cornell with my MBA, which I did while working. So I did the weekend thing, which is really fun. Those of you doing it full time, you'll probably learn a little more than me crashing through, you know, midterms and finals. But I went into getting interest in the startup business. Mm -hmm. I said, hey, look, I built this thing. So I thought maybe I could do it again. Went to an interview with a company that Fidelity had funded to run sales. And we went through the interview and the individual, the two founders said to me, I got to tell you, we got one concern with you. And I said, what? They said, we don't know if you're good or Bloomberg's good. And it was a devastating, That's a great question. devastating question <laughs> because you really had no opportunity to say Bloomberg's not good. It's one of the best companies run ever. The product was dominant. It was, pretty, it was a market leader. So am I good or is Bloomberg good? I realized I would never be able to prove to myself, despite the Cornell MBA and the 15 years experience, all the stuff I'd accomplished, it fell short of my own expectations now knowing it wasn't validated by the market. So I started looking into startups and, and how to figure that out. I eventually was at a book signing of a friend of mine, and I reached out to him. He was from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Who was it? His name is Steve McKee. He runs an advertising firm in Albuquerque, and he was doing a book signing. I visited New York City at like a library, and I emailed him after and said, hey, I, I think I want to get into this startup business. 
He goes, there is an Irish startup sitting in front of you at the book signing. It's called Data Hub. You should reach out to them. Reached out to them, ended up launching their U.S. business. We launched it in a WeWork size of this room, about four of us. It was acquired by Calidus Cloud and just acquired mm. by SAP last week. Wow. That's how I started in the entrepreneurship business. Wow. So at some point you had the impulse to start your own thing. Well, it's funny how so luck, what happened? luck drives this. In order to get the acquisition complete, they had to move to Silicon Valley. So they came up to me and said, look, do you want to move with us? Uh, my wife said no. So she said, look, I like New York. We have three girls at home. Wow. Either we could stay and operate out of New York and I could still run the business from here. But in startup life, if you're not in the room, the family room, you really miss out on some of the fun and, and a lot of the gratitude. So I ended and, up... And by the way, and the interaction, which we talk about the value of showing up all the time. There is so. nothing compared to running through really hard times together and me seeing you struggle yep. like I'm struggling. There's mm -hmm. an emotional connection that I think startups bring that's like family. Like my co-founders are like brothers to me. So I find that that's because of how we've suffered mm -hmm. you know, together. So as I'm looking at the West Coast or staying here... A company was looking to add a business person to the original group and I got a LinkedIn request to meet up with some gentlemen. We sat down and talked about an idea that they had about restaurant reviews, the anti-Yelp concept. And we met up and discussed it and looked at that project for a couple of months maybe. Tried to get it into the market, did a few things. When we pivoted is when we launched out of that company, this company, Satisfy Labs, because we realized that Customers don't want to complain as much as they want to request something. So the difference from saying the bathroom is dirty to how can I upgrade my seat, the difference from my hot dog is cold to what's the best hot dog here, there's a slight nuance to that, but it's mm -hmm. all the difference in getting traction and usage in an industry like this as well as others. So wait, so did you, were you the one that conceived of what satisfied became? Satisfy Labs truthfully came from Randy Newman, who's a co-founder. We were looking at City Field, which was our first client. Thank you, Mets. And we were looking at usage and he looked at the menu and said, do you know they have bacon on a stick here? <laughs> and we're like, no, but that sounds awesome. I wish we could get bacon on a stick now. And he goes, what if at the top of the screen we just put, where can I find bacon on a stick? And usage went about a hundred. On top of what screen? We had a screen in MLB Ballpark app that was originally oh, a complaint system, and now we turned it into a like an Amazon system. Wow. We moved it to the top. Usage spiked, went about 10 to 15x, whatever our highest day was. And then we said, where's my beer? And how do I do this? And how do I do that? And people started hitting on it. And then other teams started catching on. And through referral, we now have products in the league. And half the teams have an advanced AI system going into this season. We're adding a couple more this month. So when, when did the Mets, when was the deal with the Mets? How long ago? This is that? two seasons ago. So it's not that, so obviously so this is really recent. Yeah. yeah. But why don't we just pause where find, for, But where do you find bacon on the stick at City Field? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't know it was there. You can ask the app. Okay, the which I will do. That's because we're too busy standing online for Shake Shack right. to know, no, to know that somewhere better, else. I have a better burger there. place at City Field that I did. Oh, so. That's good to know. Yeah. Donnie, let's pause for a second and, and just uh, do us all a favor and spend a minute explaining kind of the concept of AI, yep. especially as it relates to this business. Because it's still confusing to a lot of people, including me and Joe. Mm -hmm. It's really about... Can a machine learn and converse or, or make decisions on information easier than people can process? So if you look at from either whether it's athlete, 
speed or if it's like the number of times someone can press a barbell or if it's how many questions are about a similar thing to an employee. All those things are repetitive. AI really does well in repetitive circumstances that it can try to return the same result over and over again and slightly learn derivatives or variations of those repetitive things. So when you take a lot of information together, artificial intelligence kicks in by you saying, hey, if you see all these things that are in common, I want you to make a decision or a highlight. In our business, it's, hey, we talk to 10,000 fans every day, basically. So now I know that there's actually 125 different ways to ask where the bathroom is. Some of them are vulgar, some of them are not, but it's amusing to see how people interact and engage. So whether it's statistics oriented, language oriented, dynamic ticket pricing will be a good, you know, another good example. You're just using a machine to take inputs in, organize them in a thoughtful way that you've designed with rules, and then giving you an output that is easier than you going through all the math and the work yourself. Wow. So, so what's your pitch, the quick version of the pitch to a new client? Let's say Joe and I are representing one of the teams or leagues you don't have right now. How would you pitch us? Say so customers today use Google Assistant or Siri and typically will ask questions about your services or your product, specifically your team. Now, when they walk into a stadium, those products become useless because there is no way for them to scrape data that the employees inside your team or your stadium know. So we provide a way for you to train a system in real time that knows and understands the depth of knowledge of your employee, but could be accessed through any mobile device, whether it be Amazon Alexa, Google Home, an app, Facebook, Twitter, pick the channel of choice, but now you have a very persistent engagement and you're learning about every question or intent your fan asks that typically goes to an employee and gets dropped on the floor. Now the data is being accessed and you understand what people want to do as opposed to what you're offering them. So it was really interesting and, and my guess is that somewhere down the line that this will come in if it hasn't yet with volunteer groups at major events and the, the example I will give was at the Super Bowl. Now the great people of Minneapolis were unbelievably helpful, trying to be helpful. They had the largest uh, pool of volunteers of any sporting event ever. It was like 30,000 people. Yet, as soon as I walked into the habit trails, which connect all the downtown in Minneapolis, the first person I asked was, how do you get to the stadium indoors? And the first five volunteers didn't know how to get there. And they didn't know because it was indoors, they could not go on Google and search how you could do it because they couldn't get a signal. So my guess is that somewhere down the line is that there will be host committees, if they haven't yet, coming to you to say, we need to figure out all these things. because. It was glaring and it happened last week. Well, and plus there's so, some irony in that because yeah. one of your big clients was Mall of America. Yeah. <laughs> right. This was not in the mall. Though. Okay. So Mall of America is unique activation because we have a humanoid robot. We have two. Ooh, I saw them. Yeah. They were all They're around really the White cool. Robot Pepper. SoftBank Robotics yeah. is a huge partner they of were, ours. They hung out the whole time at Radio Row. They do. So. And so we're able to leverage the robot as a place they can ask questions about the mall as well as the app, the website, and Alexa. So you have an omni-channel distribution where now the customer is getting multiple ways yeah. to engage and what we're learning is what type of products or stores they're also looking for so imagine you're at you have tenants well if i had another makeup store would that change or what food am i missing what cuisine am i missing 
Very similar to SunTrust Park, they changed their menus based on our product. Because, because people were saying, I can't get bacon on a stick. Well, in that, <laughs> yeah. In that case, they, were, they actually had a higher percentage of allergies than the team was aware of to things like gluten. So by going back to Delaware North, they were able to say, look, we see the demand curve for a different thing than we assumed. Now we can make an adjustment because we have the data that powers it. Wow. Um, so, so just tell us how, it, it's always interesting to hear how companies start. So you, so you started this a few years ago. You've got some investors. Tell us about those early days of raising capital because you had to wear a lot of hats. You went from yes, being the head of kind of on the product yep. tech side to being on the sales side to now running a business and you had to raise money, you had to hire people. What was that like? When we transitioned, when I transitioned to CEO, we didn't really have any money. Uh, it was really one of those things where we had bootstrapped it with our own money at first and we had a few family and friends and then we needed to bring in some institutional money to validate it. So at that point, I was selling both and selling it two ways, investors, selling investor to give us money the, for a percentage of the company, selling customers on it as well. We got very lucky. I give a lot of credit to Stadia Ventures out of St. Louis, mm. if you know them. Yep. Mm -hmm. They've been a huge partner of ours, very grateful for their connections. Uh, they met us very early on and said, we love what you're doing. We want to support you. And part of that consortium is you go out there to St. Louis every other week for a time and you spend to learn and get mentored by them. We'd originally thought we were above that. We're like, hey, we're guys that have these long careers. My partners, collectively, we have like 50 years of experience. So we thought we knew what we were doing. But sitting with Stadia, we really got a re-education in some of our assumptions. That's where I met uh, Mr. Vinick from the Tampa Bay Lightning. He's the owner of Tampa Bay Lightning in St. Louis one day. I said, hey, Mr. Vinick, at Bloomberg, you were my largest account. It was a huge hedge fund. <laughs> And it was my number one account when I ran sales. And he said, and we had a good conversation about that. He said, what are you doing now? I said, well, we've taken our finance backgrounds and applied them to language. And as a matter of fact, we even have one hockey team. And he goes, who's that? I said, it's yours. And so he goes, well, I'm going to go ask them what they think of you. I said, well, you do that because it's a good, it's a hopefully a good report. Is it the product or the person? <laughs> here we go again. Donnie's got a chip on his shoulder, clearly. <laughs> so he... Uh, he went back and, and asked about us with them, and, and the result was he's an investor in the company and a huge supporter of what we're doing. He's obviously doing many things outside of sports that interest us in the real estate market, and he's reinventing Tampa Bay. He's one of the best owners in sports. I'm obviously biased to that, but just impressed by the man and by the luck or what you would call it of him being in St. Louis the same day we were because of a relationship like Stadia Venture. Can you talk about some of your other investors? Yes, we have a one VC on the West Coast who's interested in what we're doing from a future private equity play. We're now bringing in a group of investors from Broadway. So we're in a bunch of theaters on Broadway that's going New York and international. We're negotiate, negotiating a final piece with a music company that wants us to get into the live theater and concert space and music festivals. So Excellent. we have three, there's really three major investors uh, amongst us included. And then your big partners, you touched a little bit on the Mets. Um, who are some of the other teams, leagues that you're working with now? We have a, a very significant partnership with BAM, Major League Baseball Advanced Media. They, they helped us through our first year tremendously with getting the traction, helping us build some of our ideas. So Major League Baseball is major. IBM, we were in their annual report last year, cited as a partner mm. in what they're doing. SoftBank Robotics at CES this year announced that we're embedded in all their humanoid robots, Pepper, 
And we just uh, concluded a partnership with Amazon about building skills that'll be going out to many of the teams in the next coming months as we launch them. But that was based on some work we're doing with one of the major theme parks that will be announced uh, hopefully the end of this month. Wow. It's really impressive. That sucks. So so let's get back to your point about, I think you used the phrase omni or the word omni-channel. How do you envision this developing and evolving in terms of ultimately the interface for customers? We are 100% in the voice goal. We believe that your phone, whatever version that becomes, if you look at Zuckerberg and his vision of like, there'll be no phone, it'll be... You know, something that's either in your glasses or attached to you. Our business was designed... Attached to you. That sounds very Black Mirror. <laughs> implanted in you. I, I think I've seen this because yeah. Tom made me start watching Black Mirror. But that's Listen, a Black Mirror is... I watch Black Mirror all the time just to get ideas. Yeah. Black Mirror... The just to get ideas. That's scary. Because what they do... What did you just say? I'm going to run back what you just said. So. <laughs> I saw that. So. Yeah. I think the goal is how do you make data the most accessible? And so voice seems to be the easiest way to do that. Everyone has a voice for the most part, or they could type it at some level. But having to type even seems not efficient. For me, just say it out loud seems to be the best. At CES, it was all about Alexa, Google Home, voice-activated bike locks and and lights and things of that sort. Voice-activated bike locks? Yeah, it's yeah, like, I am sense. here. Yeah. Uh, voice, I, missed, I missed that one. Voice recognition, so it knows your voice, very similar to Alexa. So complementing the idea of facial recognition, like iPhone 10. Right, but yeah. no one's going to put a camera on your bike lock, but yeah. something that understood well, you your voice. Know. Well, future, future. IOT. What was yeah. the question? <laughs> so <laughs> voice is meant um, to be the universal What, what, what interface is going to ultimately... I think mobile um, apps have a lot of functionality. Where we're getting a lot of interest from uh, mobile app companies is that it can drive the navigation of the app. Hey, show me Matt Ryan's quarterback rating last week. Hey, show me where I am in reference to my favorite beer. Hey, show me where I'm parked or where's the quickest way home. All those activations then surface app functions, and then you have an easy way to navigate. Um, so two questions. Is there ever a worry and of too many, too much apps? And how do you overcome that, number one? And number two is internationally, especially in sports. How much is what you have started to do adaptable to La Liga, Bundesliga, wherever it is, the Olympics? Um, How do those two play it? So, Your second question first. Mm -hmm. I was on the phone today with a major sponsor of a European football slash soccer Mm -hmm. team. And they have a sneaker brand. They're interested in a bunch of what we're doing. Not from the fan in stadium necessarily, but more the fan in general. So how could you insert surveys, very dynamic conversational surveys in a purchase experience of a jersey or a purchase experience of of buying an online stream or even just calling a stat? So it's like this. Hey, I looked at this boot. Like I like these cleats. Put it in my cart. Hey, did why did you pick those cleats? Oh, I like messy. Thank. Next question. And we have a technology that has slots in it. So if we knew that you were a messy fan, let's say that slot's filled. But in my next interaction with you, I just want to learn if you like the color or if you like the support or what is it that you liked. So in sports, especially in Europe, they're more interested in the fans around the world. And how those yes. teams actually have like an Asia presence or an American presence. Less about the 
stadium where if you go to like Liverpool, which Mr. Vinick's involved in, you stand the whole game, you're staring at the field. There's no mobile like AR VR thing going on in that culture. And but, you've been a ticket holder for 75 yeah, years. And so your, your kids will be ticket holders, yep. stand in the same place as you, yep. wear the same scarf. So there's different culture there than here. And that's where those teams are more interested in the viewership of who's home mm-hmm. or around connecting those dots mm. less than the in-stadium. And then app fatigue was the other question. Is app fatigue is, it's it's there. I just switched, this might be like blasphemy, I just switched to an Android phone. I know, it's shocking. But our CTO, Randy, he really sold it for months and months. I think the elegance of how it makes the OS more seamless, it doesn't feel like I have a lot of apps, it feels like I have one layer that kind of opens things for me. That's where things I think are gonna go. If you talk to Google now about how they're constructing the Google Assistant, Mm. the apps are just being built in the underlayer of Google Assistant. So it's not necessarily an app, it's more like a knowledge base. And those little mini knowledge bases, which is where we're focused on, will just surface in that one Assistant type UI. So it'll have less about all those different apps, but all those apps are gonna have to convert to that singular voice area. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the robot. Before, before I do that, let me just do one quick follow-up question slash comment. So if I'm a major brand, I don't know if I like the idea of being beholden to Google in the way you just described it, right? Excellent. And we're yeah. talking about a lot of major major mm-hmm. brands in sure. our business that can say, and, and this isn't true in most of the business world, but in sports, there are brands that because of the inherent um, kind of uh, enthusiasm and passion, you know, passion of the fan bases, you can do things a little bit differently, in my opinion, where you might want to either bypass or at least have a, have a, uh, a parallel track for your engagement with your customers, not necessarily in the ecosystem of the company that is stealing a lot of the advertising. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want to make it too heavy a question, but... No, I understand. Okay. This is actually a great point. Like, what happens is... It's a very good point. Uh, same, what's funny about Google, and I find this fascinating, sometimes when you talk to someone, you say, how does Google drive results? And they say, oh, they give me the best answer. I said, how does Google make money? Oh, because they sell advertising. So are both those things always true? Like, are both those things always true? So there is a bias to every product, no matter what you know you look at. We're actually doing a new partnership with someone who's trying to compete in this space, and they're saying, well, we won't be We'll be totally independent. We're all about personalization. We just want you to get what you want. Great. How are you going to make money? We don't know yet, but we're going to figure that out <laughs> later. Right. So to your point, I think the only way this works is if the Google, Siri, Amazon, Bixby, which is Samsung's new version of that, I think they either have to provide content or call the right content. Like what we're focused on is again inside creating the experience that the Minnesota Vikings want or that the Atlanta Falcons want or the Tampa Bay Lightning want. So all Google might do is say, here you go, this is what you really want. I'm not gonna try to service you because they do a better job of it versus trying to just navigate. I think Google will be a navigation tool but not a content. This is a really interesting question. So one more follow up because this is timely. Olympic starts this weekend. Google just announced this week that they were including video clips, video highlights into search results. Snapchat announced they will be publishing video highlights. 
see where I'm going with this. Yes, yes. Like, at, at, at what point does that convenience actually affect, especially younger consumers' interest and willingness to sit in front of a television and actually consume the main product, which is the Olympics on NBC? I think sports is fascinating. It's the only thing I don't DVR and I won't watch delayed. Like, what if it's happening in, in South Korea? Like then, well, 10 you, hours away you or use that example. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, no, but, this, but that's one of the biggest events in the business. I think you're, I, listen, I agree with you. If it's in South Korea and it's the gymnastics floor exercise, and I think that that's something I don't need to see in real time, but I'm happy to see highlights only, then I'm more a casual fan than a committed fan. The Olympics are also something that's a little different because it's nationality-based, right? I'm a fan for this event only. I vote for the USA. I probably don't know anybody's name, rarely. But I vote for my country. Maybe it's Canada. Maybe it's Puerto Rico. Like, whatever country you support. But I support that country. Other sports, the major ones, highlights are rarely enough. But I think where the teams go now is focus on the live attendance. Yes. Because that experience needs to be tremendous. If you've been to Mercedes-Benz Stadium or U.S. Bank Stadium, both those live experiences are fantastic. Emily Arena, again, biased, have a tremendous guest experience that makes it impossible for you to relay that through a highlight or even a visual live stream. Like, you have to be there to experience it. In the case of the Olympics, where being there is really challenging, I think there is going to be a higher consumption interest for highlights. But if you're here in the right city or demographic of the place that has the team, I think you're going to see a greater focus on getting you there because it is such a unique thing. So um, the question I started before was the robot question. And right. So how does that, does that, will that translate down into sporting events at some point soon? Or is it, because the interesting question I asked is we had someone else on who talked about, or maybe we heard this at a conference, where the teams are now driving everyone to stay in seat versus getting up and walking around, uh, which is eventually going to lead to apps. And when gambling is legal, it will be another kind of play on this. But so will you come to a point where I'll be going to Yankee Stadium or City Field, hopefully City Field more than Yankee Stadium, and there will be robots going around in place of ushers where you can go up to them and kind of chime in on some of the things that you have? Or will it all be app-based or mobile-based? The challenge with your question is, is you're on that third rail. So what the robotics industry never wants to present is a human replacement product. Wow. Messaging-wise, it's, it's, A, it's a bad idea. B, it's not the goal. Supplement would make sense. So perhaps something that could carry huge weights or something so the person doesn't get injured or something mm -hmm. that is more elegantly going up and down the stairs. But it's not meant to replace. It's meant to supplement. Most of the focus on robotics now is not highly movable ones. There's actually a huge study about the potential for a, a movable one. What if a movable robot runs over your foot in Yankee Stadium or City Field? Then that's a whole other issue, right? But the ones that are more conversational, providing some entertainment value, maybe social value, and maybe it knows every statistic about every sport ever, those are the initial play. Uh, I thought you were going to ask if they were going to be playing on the field, which is what most people ask me. When will I see a football game of 11-on-11 yeah. 11 11 robots? That's, yeah, that's... Um, 
Okay. Well, I guess the Jetsons did that. So, <laughs> the, the Jetsons, Jetsons I are, still tell people are the leaders in where two, our business is. The Jetsons going. and Bugs Bunny, which was smell o vision replaces television, is the only one that hasn't come about from all the, the Bugs Bunny stuff. You know, the so, highest used robotics now hmm. outside of the conversational ones that we work with are like inventory management systems. Right. Like I think Walmart, you'll see some a little cylinder running down with scans on right and left to see what's in stock and what's not in stock. That's a great use case mm. because now you just know what's happening in your store. So it's still early days in robotics. We have a new partnership we'll be announcing in March with one that's designed more for suites. And I think that is going to be an exciting experience for the suite. That makes sense. Wow. Did you guys see the Metalhead episode of Black Mirror? Yes, I did. That, so uh, you haven't seen that. Not one. yet. I will tonight. Wait, wait, wait. But it's like that. The concept there yes. quickly is the, these are robots that, that are called dogs mm-hmm. that essentially prey on human beings, and it is human dev- beings that have done something wrong. Devil- devilishly entertaining mm-hmm. that episode. It's really bizarre. I just happened to see it this week. Metalhead is one you should watch. You'll be yeah. now afraid of all walking robots when you see <laughs> Thank <metalhead>. you. <laughs> that makes you feel a lot better. Okay, Donnie, back to the platforms for a second. Talk a little bit about the difference between the strategy that Google is employing versus Amazon versus Apple. Mm-hmm. Fascinating thing. When Amazon first came out, everyone ran to, I need to build a skill. I need to build a skill. The retailers then realized that any skill built on that platform is now providing data and information to a huge retailer, essentially. So you have a retailer owning a home and now presenting this product, which is obviously listening. I think we've seen the court cases and everything mm-hmm. going on. But retailers, like we have a our Macy's person that we pitched to and got the contract from, now works for us. So she said, I remember in her early days, well, our retailer would not really be interested in a skill on Amazon. It would be giving away a lot of information. Google Home comes in and they say, well, this is not a retailer. So a lot of the current retailers say, well, I feel safer there. Now the question is going to be, is Apple safer than both Amazon and Google for brands that don't feel threatened or do feel threatened by Amazon saying, this is my safe place? I think the answer is yes, because their business model is not literally based on the collection of data. You don't make money that way. Yes. The challenge is everyone's already bought typically one or two of the other. So now you have a third device trying to jump in and say, I'm here. Okay. But just to set the, set the um, a little reality check, from the research I've read, only 16% of American households actually have a voice assistant in the house, right? So that leaves a huge market share. Apple has a massive install base totally of true. very dedicated users. Ecosystem it was just announced today, tiny. coincidentally, that with the HomePod launch tomorrow, they've already sold out of HomePods. Mm-hmm. As I tweeted earlier today, mm-hmm. Apple fanboys will be Apple fanboys. It's always been the case with Apple products. Many of us are, and another announcement uh, was, or another story came out today, that uh, Apple Music is on track to surpass Spotify for U.S. subscribers. Saw tools, that. right? That's a really interesting development in this business. Point being that it seems like it's going to be a three-way race and that as a brand, back to your point, including sports brands, personally, and I'm a little bit biased because I'm an Apple fan. I know, but did still, you notice he's a <laughs> little bit of an Apple fan? Everybody knows that. He has an Apple well, tattoo on his left right. shoulder. No, but I, I guess... He's drinking I apple do, coffee right now. I don't know, but maybe because I know some of the business and strategy behind all these things, I, I do think 
that the non-data collection part of this premise is, a, is kind of an important consideration. They did open in line, why, why this is important, they did open business chat, business chat through SMS now. So Apple is saying, look, you have your assistant here, you have your assistant there, I'm just gonna SMS it, because that's where you do everything anyway, and open up apps via that vehicle which we just had a meeting with Apple about how we could integrate our company, our clients into that as well. So now, even though they're late to the game, I do agree with you, It's there's such a loyalty to Apple, which is not really like what Google gets or even what Amazon gets. You might find that this rises above the three to be something. Now, I would also say from the sports business, there's less risk in being in all three and right. you're kind of having mm -hmm. to say yeah, yeah i'm not saying anybody's got to pick one or the others right. but i think but but i i do believe especially for those businesses that are largely or primarily ad supported yes you got to remember you're playing with the with the enemy we can call them frenemies but in many ways they're the enemy because they're going after similar advertising budgets and google facebook so dominate it's it's, facebook, a, it's, Twitter. A, it's a big challenge all so. the businesses, what's interesting is the ones that are driven by ad revenue have the most adoption to date. And honestly, all those companies have been really friendly to us. So I'm always like, hey, where are my friends? The ones that have ad revenue have been nice to us, so I'm nice back to them. The ones that don't need ad revenue have less sometimes partnership goals because they say, hey, I'm going to sit back here and just let the market come to us. Amazons and Googles and others say, hey, who can I partner with to drive our product? So there is a revenue vehicle behind the ad engined ones that's mm -hmm. a little more partnership oriented. Yeah, than, uh, it's, it's, than really, it's really shrewd on their part. It's it was interesting to me that which of the major companies was didn't have any presence in Super Bowl advertising promotion? Yes. Cupertino, Apple was not there, yes. <laughs> even though the HomePod was coming out in what, five days? That's a that's a typical Apple move. They weren't at CES either. That's right. In it was January, very underserved. If you went to CES, Google's on the trains right. and all over. The I mean, place. it's a, it's a little bit scary. It's almost like they know their their hardcore customers will not even question the new product, even if the reviews are mixed. Which that's right. Most of the reviews are good on the speaker side and and poor on the Siri side. But let me ask a specific question about Siri because Siri gets a bad rap vis-a-vis -vis Alexa right now in the marketplace. Isn't in the conversations I've been in, that's just a function of more engineering tech and brain power, right? To fix that? Like, it's a fixable problem. It definitely is. What's really funny about Siri, I got the Android, as I mentioned. My daughter was all about the, the X, and my wife's about the X. And I'm like, no, but you can do things. The, you, the iPhone 10, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. Okay. I'll <laughs> the X. So when you get into it, you say, hey, I can do things on this phone that you can't do on this phone. She goes, why don't you show me one? I say, hey, Google, blah, blah, blah. And it goes, look. She goes, hey, Siri, blah, blah, blah. And it does the exact same thing. So a lot of it is this, what we think Google has marketed to us is mm -hmm. doing tremendous things. Siri does do most of the functions that right. are available to you. You just don't think of it the same way because the market position. Right, but you think of how most people are, and, and, and now there are usage studies for these voice assistants they're pretty banal, right? It's it's checking the weather, checking traffic. Yeah, my calendar. Like it's, it's nothing heavy, right? And and the thing is, for a lot of uh, Apple uh, devotees, uh, very pop, uh, you know, they have a very popular podcasting platform. They've got a very popular music yeah. platform. 
So I look at it saying, well, I'm really into Apple Podcasts. That's the platform I use. I subscribe to Apple Music. I use Apple Reminders, Apple Cal, etc. Like, why would I want to go to a new platform? I have a MacBook Pro, but right. I have a different... And I'm not interested in feeding more data to Amazon f- because of the reasons you just cited a, a little while ago. Anyway. We could go on on this one for a while. Yes, we can. (laughs) So getting back as time is wrapping up, uh, the one question I wanted to ask, and you've touched on the Lightning and touched a little bit on the Vikings, um, who are some of the teams that people should be following and what are those teams doing? If you had two or three to pick, uh, and then we'll get into the last questions. Best practices, yeah. AMBSE, which is the Falcons United group, Mm -hmm. they do a fantastic job. They also, since they manage multiple teams and a venue, they kind of have to think about how to touch multiple fan bases. We did both a college playoff game and a Falcons home game one day after the other. So that wow. type of crazy transition, mm-hmm. I think they do a fantastic job. Locally, New York Jets have been just a, a great team to work yep. with. They're constantly trying to push the envelope and do new things. If you saw, they did a lot of stuff in AR this year, mm-hmm. and they're Student doing experience. They're too. doing more stuff even next year. They've they've been friends of ours for a while, and we have a great relationship with them, half because they're local. And their stadium partner doesn't do the ex- doesn't do the same things no. in any way, shape, or form. I don't I don't so, comment on that. Okay, whoever the, that would be. So. <laughs> Uh, exciting team in baseball, the Atlanta Braves. Atlanta really? Braves with the Cle- new stadium. Yep, Cleveland mm-hmm. Indians. Cleveland Indians, I have to give a lot of credit for. They came up with some really great ideas. Their CIO, his name is Neil Weiss. He saw what the Mets were doing and said, hey, I have a new idea. And he really drove a lot of the product development that we went into after our first season, I should say. So some of these mid-market teams get very creative and they think really outside the box. I could tell you the San Diego Padres and the Philadelphia Phillies both came up with innovative ideas for this season where once you give some of these teams that are really like thinking, hey, I, I really forget about on-field performance, whether it's first place or last place, what can I do differently? Until they engage? get to first place and then it all changes, <laughs> but that's a different state. And then, well, let's say that, let's hope not. Yeah. But yeah, so those, those teams just on the MLB side are fantastic at, at being creative. We're just now starting with MLS. Mm-hmm. So we'll be launching two MLS teams this year, the Red Bulls and LAFC, so very high market, opposite coast. They are really pushing to be top of the food chain and innovation. They've just started to talk about what they could do in their stadiums. What about the broader entertainment market? The interesting thing with music and and live theater, a lot of the focus is on your pre and post trip. Like, what am I thinking about before I get there? Because once I'm inside a concert or a Broadway show, Broadway show, you can't move. Don't really have much to do. For example, telling customers the show starts at seven. What do you think it starts at eight? (laughs) That happened to somebody in this room, not me or you. So we'll figure out. After spending an enormous amount of money for a really expensive ticket, heavy focus on the entertainment industry is. What is it that you would have done or could have done and we didn't allow you to do? So a perfect example is ticketing. We actually have partnered with Telecharge here in New York and we're learning from some very popular shows what price point they would have paid on a certain day. So do you look at things the day? Is this day important to you? Is the cheapest ticket important to you? Or is where you sit the most important to you? Which of those three things? And now I bucket you. And then I drive the conversation down one of those. Oh, you're cheap? Hey, you want to go tonight? I have a seat tonight. Oh, it's your anniversary, so you'll pay up to go that day. 
I met with the number one Broadway show in the world recently, and the CEO. Aladdin? <laughs> it's got a rap theme yeah. to it. So I met with him, CEO, and said, hey, why would you use a product like ours? And he said, I know I have eight years of ticket demand based on all my research. I believe that for eight years, the show will be sold out. I said, well, then why would we work together? He goes, I want to know if it's nine or 10 or seven. I think it's eight, but your product gives me a true demand curve. So I have data to back my other research. And the other thing is I have a road show and suddenly I see that there are more people coming in from St. Louis. So maybe we're going to St. Louis. That's a good point. Yeah. So we do learn geographically where fan bases are, particularly if you put a social element into it. And for the music artists, one that we're working with, they want to know where they should do their tours. So mm -hmm. to try to figure out, mm -hmm. you know, based on, hey, when's the next time such and such band is coming to New York? Okay, that's a tag. When's the next time they're coming to Pennsylvania? That's a tag. When's that, you know, and start to generate this search data that right now Google is using for its ad business. This is bringing it back to the primary provider of the service, and now they're learning directly from oh, This is a really interesting topic. All right, we got to wrap up. Um, it's been terrific. Donnie, how do you keep up with everything? How do you stay smart? I read two hours a day. I commit two hours a day to read either you know market news like VentureBeat or Mashable. I have a bunch of influencers that I talk with. I've also built up some relationships in the VC community, both in Silicon Valley and New York, where we've just agreed to catch catch up every month or so. It's great. What are you hearing? What am I hearing? Whether or not they invest in us is really not relevant. I had lunch with one today and all we did was talk about what are the companies that you're excited about? What are the customers you're excited about? And how do you stay on top of it? So every night my team will see me put a Slack at 11 o'clock at night saying, hey, did you see this? Are you aware of this? And that's how we stay on top of when it. When do you read? Do you read in the morning or at night? I love the Long Island Railroad because of the length of time it takes me to get from point A to Especially point B. Especially when there's a delay. It's dependable in the rain and snow to add a half hour reading each way. So when I wake up, I commit the commute each way to staying on, you know, on top of things. Yeah. Okay. And then advice? last but not least, some advice, career advice for uh, the different types of folks listening to this. I just, someone just asked me uh, in an interview recently, like, what would you tell your former self if you could? I said, I would highly recommend getting startup experience at some layer of your career, either when you're in school, about to go into the next level of school. Even if you intern for three months, we're lucky to have some Columbia students right now. We have two of them. Shout out for David Goldstein. <laughs> is that the Goldstein one? Yes. 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 He's yeah. working so there right Sean, now. Sean yeah. is another one. Sean Kumar. So we have Sean Kumar and David in the office. Nice. Just them, them also giving us their perspective because they're kind of the generation we're building products for, sure. as well as their contribution. But my Bloomberg self had no knowledge of what I didn't understand till I stepped out and had no covering of what Mike Bloomberg built and mm -hmm. said, oh, wait, so how did he do this? Like, this is fascinating. So I do, I do think you should get in line with it at least a few months in your career to really learn the hard road and then jump off to whatever it is that you want to do. The last question along those lines, since you worked at Bloomberg, not really, I mean, but did you have a mentor or do you have a mentor? And you don't, if you don't want to say who it is, but... Is it someone who's older, younger, and how did you find that mentor? Right now, I have, I have one, his name is Don Middleberg. He is an investor. He's been a CEO twice. He's exited two companies. We just connected uh, very early on, about two years ago, and I sought him out because this is my first CEO job. He's had it twice. He's been successful at it. And he's one of a, about five men, five men that I utilize 
One's my father, one is Don, his friend Gary that runs private equity at Morgan Stanley, and, and two others. I look to them just to say, hey, am I reading this wrong? Am I reading this wrong? I made this decision last week. What would you have done differently? And to keep me accountable to the group. So I do find that you have to always have a rabbi, which mm-hmm. at Bloomberg, my entire career, I would have one or two my throughout, and they would I would kind of go where they went. I still talk to three or four of them probably every other month. But I do think mentorship is one of the most important things. That's great. So, Donnie, last but not least, where can everybody check out Satisfy? So we have an interesting website. It's not in Finland, but it's www.satis.fi. Uh, I'm still negotiating for .com, but it's a seven-digit tag, so we'll pause on that for a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, happy to reach out. There, my email address is don at satis.fi. Feel free to reach out directly if you have any questions. Uh, on social media? Uh, at the Donnie White, because Donnie White was taken. I put a the in front. All right. There you go. <laughs> so it's and easy at Satisfy, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, on Twitter. All right, cool. Um, all right, that was outstanding. Really Great. enjoyed that conversation. So thank you for sharing all your stories and insights and congrats on all the success. No, thank Sounds you. Like you got it. It. You guys have a really great future in this business. Joe, thank you. A great number 99. Yes, exactly. The great so uh, we'll be back Sorry. for 100. Uh, and just one reminder for all the listeners, check out eSports Boom with Maurice and his partner Anton on all the leading podcasting platforms. Thanks everybody for listening. It was our pleasure to do this podcast and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and my co-host is Joe Favorito. And our production assistant this week is Columbia student Maurice Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore SPS underscore sports. Also, you can find out more about our program, the Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.